The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Turn in your Bibles uh, to Revelation 9. As we continue in our study in the book of Revelation, I come to this chapter which is one of the most dreadful chapters in the entire book of Revelation and therefore I think one of the most dreadful chapters in the entire Bible. And so we come to it with a, a sense of seriousness, a sense of the weightiness of what is in this chapter as I believe it's a prophecy of the future. Many people wonder constantly why the world is as as bad as it is. The level of human suffering in an average day is incalculable. Hospitals are filled with emergencies and terminal patients. The nursing homes contain countless lonely people who are living out their days, their final days in isolation and misery. Every day CNN and other news outlets report, report Uh, Things like terrorist bombings or other type things, beheadings even, along with the saber-rattling actions of rogue states like North Korea that have missile capability. Several times a year, natural disasters, perhaps like an earthquake or hurricane, tidal wave, a flood, a tsunami, rock some part of the globe with death and destruction and we are able to see that by means of this technology and understand the kind of suffering that these disasters bring. But beyond this, beyond those things that make it up onto the news feeds, we're aware of millions of normal people utterly miserable with their private struggles, addictions to drugs and alcohol, their marriages that are founding on the, foundering on the rocks of, of adultery and abuse. There are teens that are wandering off into rebellion in predictable, recognizable patterns. Not to mention hundreds of millions of people who are living below the poverty line, struggling every day to scrape out an existence, earning dollars a day, trying not to starve to death. Biblically trained, spiritually sensitive people are aware that behind all of this human misery... Behind all of this human suffering is a deeply malevolent force, an intelligent force. Personal, devious, powerful, invisible. Goes by many names, the name of Satan, the devil, that ancient dragon, that serpent, the king of darkness, the god of this age, the prince of the power of the air, whose invisible empire dominates the human story in ways we can hardly calculate or fully appreciate. Satan and his fallen angels, his demons, roam freely throughout this world. They allure people towards sin. They deceive people. They move people to do utterly despicable things. He is a liar and a murderer. He masquerades as an angel of light. Several key passages in the book of Daniel imply that Satan is actually ruling the minds of non-Christian heads of state around the world. He was the secret power behind the throne of the Persian Empire and by extension 
since he claims in the temptation of Christ that all the kingdoms of the world have been given to him and he can give them to anyone he wants to that he actually rules in some way every nation with dark power his dark hatred for the human race is immeasurable his implacable desire is to see every last human being all of us who are created in the image of God suffering incalculable torment his commitment to the misery and destruction of the human race is unshakable it's greater than we can possibly imagine so since this is true we begin to realize the real question about this present age is not the one I posed at the beginning not this why are things as bad as they are Actually, the question is, why aren't things infinitely worse than they are? Why do the average human beings around the world, on an average day, enjoy so much happiness, laughter, and pleasure? The joy of natural beauty, the daily beauty of sunrises and sunsets and mountains and rivers and oceans. The soothing breeze on the face. Refreshing rains in season that guarantee another fruitful crop and guarantee enough food for another year. The joys and delights of family life, of special occasions like the wedding we enjoyed yesterday or things like that around the world. Happiness, joy, laughter, dancing, celebrations. Why are there so many happy times? Why is there actually so little war? Why do the overwhelming majority of people go through the overwhelming majority of their days without experiencing violent crime or bodily harm? Why are there relatively so few people murdered, actually, statistically? Why so few people tortured, tormented? Why is there actually so little pain and suffering if Satan is that powerful and hates us that much? It cannot be because Satan is showing us some kind of mercy. That he has some kind of pity. That he somehow feels sorry for the human race. And is letting up just a little bit. Nor can it be that his power is waning in any way. That he's losing his grip. Not at all. The answer that comes from the Bible is actually very soothing and comforting. And that is that Almighty God is not letting him do everything that he would like to do to us. He is restricting Satan's malevolent actions. Every day, every minute restraining him. Including Satan's powers to inflict harm on the human race. God's restraining Satan and his demons from doing all that they could. And this is not just to godly people. Now he does do that in reference to the godly. You remember in the book of Job how... Satan complains to God concerning Job. Have you not put a hedge around him and everything he possesses? Implying, I would get at him, but you won't let me. You have been a wall, a barrier between me and what I'd like to do to Job. Or again in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says, God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. He's limiting Satan's ability to tempt the godly. But we're going to actually see very clearly in this chapter of Revelation that God has been restraining Satan from doing all the wickedness he would do even toward unbelievers and rebels and sinners, not the godly. God is actually holding Satan back 
from harming them as well. And reserving the full disclosure of Satan's power and wickedness for the end of the world. But friends, it's coming. It's coming. That's what this chapter is about. Now, God does this restraining work out of mercy. Even to the rebels that are actively serving Satan, though they don't know it. Who are called in scripture, sons of the devil. God does this so that some of them may eventually be rescued from the dominion of darkness. And brought over into the kingdom of the beloved son, the kingdom of light. God restrains Satan and his demons from all the violence they would do to rescue some from his dark kingdom. Now, throughout history, God has allowed a little more freedom to Satan and his demons from time to time. It's hard to know when they were, but you can imagine some of the events of the 20th century, the, uh, the, the cataclysms that happened in World War I, World War II. For me, I zero in on the on the German invasion of the Soviet Union when you have this Nazi army going up against this red communist army and there is all this godlessness on both sides of the equation and it results in a death machine that kills literally millions of people. And I think that just shows Satan's hatred for both the Germans and the Russians. Neither of them righteous. Not saying that there were not any saved people in either of those armies, but I'm just talking about the cataclysm that happened and all of the death and destruction. But honestly, that was a mere dress rehearsal. For Revelation 9 depicts the sounding of the fifth and sixth trumpets by the angels, unleashing a level of demonic terror and destruction and death that we can scarcely imagine even our deepest, darkest nightmares. Now let's step back and get a little bit of context here. The book of Revelation... The apocalypse is so-called because it pulls a veil back. It unveils things that are hidden from our physical eyes. Things that we would not be able to see. The invisible spiritual realms that surround us all the time. The realm of God on his throne. Of Christ at the right hand of Almighty God. Of the Holy Spirit active throughout the world. Also of angels and godly people surrounding the throne in constant worship up in heaven. We see that. But it also reveals in a very powerful way the existence, the reality, the power of Satan and his demons. So we can see the reality and wicked actions and their plans. Beyond this, the book of Revelation also unveils the mystery of the future. Something we cannot see with our own physical eyes. Something we would have no way of knowing what was coming if God didn't tell us. It says in the book of James chapter 4, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. But this is revealing something that's going to happen in the future. Now the apostle John, who was the human author of the book of Revelation, was in exile on the island of Patmos for his, his ministry in the name of Christ. And he was invited on an amazing spiritual journey to ascend by the power of the Holy Spirit up off that rocky, tiny island off the coast of modern day Turkey to ascend through a doorway in the heavenly realms to see Almighty God on His throne and to see the future. It says in Revelation 4, 1 and 2, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice that I'd first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. So a clear revelation, not just of the immediate spiritual world that we can't see with our eyes, but of the future. 
what's coming in the future. That once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone seated on it. Now that scene in heaven is essential to everything that follows. Revelation 4 depicts the incessant worship of heavenly beings around that in concentric circles around the throne of Almighty God. Praising him in Revelation 4 for being God the creator. Giving him worship for creating and sustaining all things. Then in Revelation 5 we have depicted in the right hand of the one who's seated on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides sealed with seven seals. And a mighty angel cries out who is worthy to take the scroll and open its seals but there's no one found who is worthy. But then comes Jesus Christ the lion of the tribe of Judah a lamb looking as if he had been slain. And he has the right and the responsibility to take the scroll from the right hand of him who sits on the throne. And when he takes it, there is tremendous praise and worship. Revelation 4 for God the Creator. Revelation 5 for Christ the Redeemer. And then in Revelation 6, the Lamb, Jesus Christ, begins to break open the seven seals. And in so doing, he unleashes judgments from heaven onto earth. With the breaking of the heavenly seals... Things happen on earth. The four horsemen of the apocalypse. And martyrs. A river of martyrs blood. And then the shaking of the physical universe. And with the sixth seal. And then you have a break. An interruption between the sixth and seventh seal. And you have Revelation 7. A vision of the redeemed. From every tribe, language, people and nation. Standing before the throne. With white robes and palm branches in their hands. And they're celebrating their final salvation. And they are there, I think, in answer to the question that's asked at the end of Revelation 6. The great day of the wrath of Almighty God is coming. And who is able to stand? Revelation 7 is the answer. The redeemed from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. They will be able to stand when God's wrath is poured out on the earth. But then in Revelation 8, it begins with the prayers of the saints rising to the, to the altar... And to the throne of God. And that the prayers in context are clearly for justice. And for vengeance. Against their enemies who have shed their blood. And have treated them so shamefully. And an angel takes the uh, coals from the altar. Together with the prayers that have ascended to God. For deliverance and justice. And hurls the censer to the earth. And that's a picture of the pouring out of the wrath of God in answer to what these people have done and what the demons have done to God's own chosen people. And so the things that follow, the seven trumpets, are clearly portrayed then as the wrath of God protecting his beloved bride, protecting his people. And so the seventh seal is broken and seven angels emerge effectively from the seventh seal. Just as we're later going to see, see with the seventh trumpet, the seven bowls come out of that. So there's this telescoping effect. And so we have the seventh seal giving way to the seven trumpets. And the seven angels with seven trumpets come and they prepare to sound them. And in Revelation 8 we saw last time the first four angels sounded their trumpets. And so this is in, 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 in serial fashion. First angel, then the second, then the third, then the fourth. And what happens are stunning judgments that flow from heaven to earth, ripping apart the ecology of the earth, ripping apart the natural order of planet earth. Judgments on one third of the trees and the growing plants and all the green grass, 
Judgments on the sea resulting in a third of the living creatures in the sea dying. Sea turning to blood. Judgments on the fresh water, uh, the rivers and the streams and the ponds. Turning one third of them into poison so that if anybody drank them they died. Judgments on the, even the celestial lights, the sun, the moon and the stars. So that a third of their light is struck. Now this one third language as I mentioned last time. Of these four trumpets reveals the restraint God is showing to planet earth. He could do far worse than that. Though these are the greatest ecological cataclysms that have ever come on planet earth. But God could do far worse. Last week I cited that statement that God made to Pharaoh in the midst of the plagues. In Exodus 9.15. For by now I could have stretched out my hand. And struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you from the face of the earth. So the one-third language is God saying, I am restraining myself. There's more I could do. Now, at the end of the chapter, uh, Revelation 8, after the first four trumpets have sounded, we have this awesome event. Look at it in Revelation 8, 13. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Whoa! Whoa! Woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. It's as though with all of the disaster of the first four trumpets, the eagle is warning the people of the earth saying, effectively, you haven't seen anything yet. It's going to get vastly worse. Now today we're going to learn what that eagle meant. I feel to some degree that we as Christians are to are to play that eagle role. I'm not saying there's not going to be a literal eagle doing this. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying we're reading this. We, we get this text. We are aware of what the Bible says is coming on the earth. Our job is to make people who are not aware, aware. That we would proclaim the woes that are coming on the earth. I'm not saying that we should begin our evangelistic encounter with the fifth and sixth trumpets. But what I am saying is, if we believe that the scripture is true and that this is, as Revelation 4.1 says, a prediction of what is yet to come on the earth, that we need to be serious about this and warn people of the judgments that are coming. Now let's look at the fifth trumpet. The fifth trumpet is depicted in the verses that you heard Walter read, verses 1 through 12. Look at verse 1 and 2. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. And when he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. Now as we've seen already with the seven seals, now we get it again with the seven trumpets, we're going to get it with the seven bowls. Heaven always initiates. Heaven starts everything and then the earth responds. Things happen on the earth. And so here we get the fifth angel, he's sounding his trumpet. The suffering, therefore, that's about to be unleashed is a display of the just wrath of God. It's not like God is passive and is kind of amazed that this is happening. The angel is summoning these things to happen by the trumpet. Now we need to try to understand who, what, is this star that fell from heaven to earth that unlocks with a key the abyss, the shaft of the abyss. There are many interpretations of this mystery. Some commentators don't try to determine what the star is. Other commentators, like John Calvin, don't even try to do anything with the book of Revelation. Just stay away from it entirely. Some pastors would say, that is wise. Why are you going verse by verse through Revelation? But all scripture is God-breathed and useful for us. 
And though I cannot understand all of the details, it's still valuable to try. The star clearly has intelligent powers. It's not an inanimate object. The unlocking of a lock with a specific key... uh, ...with a specific purpose in mind shows this is a personal intelligent being. Now in the Bible often stars represent angels... As in the book of Job, when God speaks of creation and the laying of the foundation of the earth, he says in Job 38, 7, while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. So the morning stars are singing, so they're personal and they're worshiping and the the mention of the angels. But this star is depicted as having fallen from the sky to the earth. The Greek verb tense is perfect. It's a completed action in the past. This is the star that had fallen. He fell in the past. And this star unlocks the pit to the abyss, allowing a demonic horde to billow out like smoke from the shaft of the abyss. Now Satan is called in Isaiah 14, morning star, son of the dawn, I believe. Isaiah 14, 12, how you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. King James Version Famously translates that Lucifer, morning star Lucifer. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations, Isaiah 14, 12. And Revelation 12 depicts him as a dragon that was thrown to the earth. We'll see that, God willing, in future weeks. Revelation 12, 9, the great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and all his angels with him. And we're going to see in Revelation 12, with his dragon tail, he sweeps a third of the stars from the heavens and throws them to the earth. The stars then would represent fallen angels or what we know as demons. Demons. Also, Jesus said in Luke 10, 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So you've got this falling language again and again. Satan is thrown to the earth. Well, I believe then this is Satan. And later in verse 11, the king over this billowing cloud that wreaks havoc on the earth is called destroyer, Abaddon and Apollyon. So I think it's pretty clear we're talking about Satan. Well, Satan unlocks the pit. The star is given a key to unlock the shaft to the abyss. It had been locked before. The smoke has not been allowed to billow out. The word abyss in the Greek literally means bottomless. That's what it means, bottomless. A pit so deep it has no bottom at all. This word is used seven times in Revelation as the prison of demons. The word shaft uh, conjures a narrow neck coming up from the pit, somewhat like a, a mining shaft. This prison for demons is a place where it seems especially corrupt and wicked demons are punished before the end of the world. Unlike other demons, their freedom is restrained. They're not allowed freedom to roam over the earth like Satan has now. Where, remember, God said to Satan, where have you come from? From roaming over the earth. And other demons go through arid places seeking rest. They don't find it, but they're restlessly roaming on the earth. These demons seem to be restrained. They seem to have been thrown in a, in a prison. So they're not able to roam on the earth. Jesus confronted the demon-possessed man of the Gadarenes. In Matthew eight twenty nine. the demon says, 
What do you want with us, Son of God? They shouted at him. Have you come here to torment us before the appointed time? So there is a torment that comes on demons before the final end of the world. Also in Luke 8, 30 and 31, the same encounter, Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion. It's like 6,000 Roman soldiers. The legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. Luke 8, 31. And they begged him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. That's pretty clear then, isn't it? The abyss is a, is a holding place for demons. And they are gathered and thrown there by the power of Almighty God. Jesus would have that power to throw them in the abyss. Their freedom is restrained, but it's not their final judgment, as 2 Peter 2 makes it plain. They're held for final judgment, but they're restrained. 2 Peter 2, 4 says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, that's the NIV's translation of the Greek word Tartarus, which again is is a deep pit, putting them in the gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. So I think what is going on here is some demons were especially bad. Not all the demons were equally evil or equally powerful. Some of them especially bad were gathered by the power of God and put in this pit and locked there. Locked there. But now when this fifth trumpet is sounded, Satan unlocks this deep pit and out billows a cloud of black smoke. And it's implied that these are the worst demons that there could possibly be. The worst that there have ever been. They've been locked up until that moment. And now they're coming out. The effect of this terrifying black cloud of demons is to darken the sunlight of the sky. Now imagine if some particularly evil warlord somehow took over power in our country. And for some reason unlocked all the prisons in the United States... And set free every prisoner to roam the streets at will. Every town and city in America. Infiltrated by people who up until that moment have been incarcerated. Serial murderers, rapists, thieves, arsonists. Utterly lawless, godless people. Roaming free at last to do whatever they found to do. If you heard that that had just happened, what would you do? Where would you run to? Where would you hide? There would be no place, no refuge. There are presently 2.2 million people behind bars, 1.5 million of them for violent crimes. But they, in my analogy, they are merely human beings. These are demons. Far more powerful than any human being. They're supernatural. They're able to do more damage than we can imagine. These demons are particularly evil, particularly vicious. Locked up in a pit for thousands of years. They are now unleashed with freedom to roam and bring unspeakable misery to planet earth. Look at verse 3 how they're described. Out of the smoke locusts came down upon the earth and they were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. So there's, there's two kind of natural analogies being given because we really can't understand what they can do. So we're given the image of a locust plague And of scorpions. So a combination of the swarming invasion. Like a locust plague would bring. And then the ability to bring torment through stings. Like a scorpion could bring. Now the book of Joel describes a locust invasion. Unlike any in human history. Locusts are grasshoppers. 
usually solitary, but under the right or I guess wrong circumstances, they become gregarious and grouped together, overwhelmingly so. They group together with thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of other uh, grasshoppers. And they swarm and they start to travel and they travel over long distances. The basic issue is they eat every green thing in their path. Everything that's green, they devour. And so the book of Joel describes them. In Joel 1.4, what the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. Joel 1, 6 and 7 says, A nation has invaded my land, powerful and without number. It has the teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines and ruined their fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. Joel chapter 2, like dawn spreading over the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was of old nor ever will be in ages to come. Before them a fire devours, behind them a flame blazes. Before them the land is like the Garden of Eden, behind them a desert waste, nothing escapes them. They have the appearance of horses, they gallop along like cavalry, with a noise like that of chariots, they leap over the mountaintops like a crackling fire consuming stubble like a mighty army drawn up for battle at the sight of them nations are in anguish every face turns pale they charge like warriors they scale walls like soldiers they all march in line not swerving from their course they do not jostle each other each marches straight ahead they plunge through defenses without breaking ranks they rush upon the city they run along the wall they climb into the windows like thieves they enter into the houses before them the earth shakes the sky trembles The sun and moon are darkened and the stars no longer shine. Joel chapter 2. That's a locust invasion. Grasshoppers. Well, Revelation 9 gives a similar image. Only now they're not going after green things. They're actually told not to touch the green things. They're going after people. They're going after people. And they don't miss anybody. Except those that are sealed with the seal of God in their foreheads. Protected by the sovereign power of God. They're not allowed to touch them. Now John reaches for another image as well. That of scorpions. Deadly desert predator. That has a stinger in its curved tail. With poison usually not enough to kill but enough to torment. Now these demons, this demonic horde that stretches the language to the breaking point. Is roaming, but they're still restricted. Even during this final era of human history, even at the sounding of the fifth trumpet, they're still restricted. Look at verse 4 and 5. They're told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not given power to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes a man. So there are four limitations of these demons. First, unlike the locusts of Joel, they're forbidden from harming green and growing things. They're going right after human beings. Notice also that the green grass has recovered from the first trumpet. Some people find a a contradiction here. I thought all the green grass was gone. Well, it was, but grass is pretty resilient. You see these terrible fires, and then within a season, the grass has grown back. So that's not a contradiction at all. The grass is back, but the, uh, the demons are not allowed to touch it. Second restriction, these demons are restricted to people, but specifically what people they can attack. They can't attack everybody. 
They're not allowed to harm the elect, those marked with the seal of God on their foreheads. This harkens back to the image in Ezekiel 9.4 of an angel sent through the city of Jerusalem to mark everyone who grieves over the wickedness of the city. And this protects them from the coming judgment. So that mark is ultimately the seal of the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. We are sealed with the Spirit of God. And so these are those that have already crossed over from death to life. They're believers. They're sealed. And they'll be protected from the demonic attacks. The third limitation is the demons cannot kill people. They can only torment them. They can only torment them. And the fourth limitation is the time frame. They've got five months to do their work. Four limitations. God's still sovereign. This is going on under great wickedness, but limitations. Now look at the terrible effect in verse 6. During those days, men will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. Here's why some commentators have likened it to hell on earth. In hell, people suffer torment, but they cannot escape through death. There is no death. That is the second death, the final death. And so it says in Mark 9, 47 and 48, hell is where their worm does not die and where the fire is never quenched. At the time of the fifth trumpet, when these demons are swarming all over the earth, stinging the unrighteous with poisonous stingers, the agony of the people will be immeasurable, probably the greatest level of suffering cumulatively that the human race has ever experienced at any instant or moment of human history. People long to die, but they will not be able to die. They won't even be able to commit suicide to escape the pain. Medical science will not be able to alleviate their suffering. There'll be nothing that can be done for them. Now in verses 7 through 10, the demons are described, as I said, in language that seems to stretch to the breaking point. The locusts look like horses prepared for battle. And on their heads, they wore something like crowns of gold and their faces resembled human faces. And their hair was like women's hair. And their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails and stings like scorpions. And in their tails they had power to torment people for five months. Now Paul says when it comes to scripture we see through a glass darkly. Then face to face. So language can only bring us so far. It gives us everything we need for life and godliness. But it's hard to even describe what these demons are like. So what I think he's doing is he's trying his best. So he used language like looked like or had something like or they resembled or had hair like or their breastplates were like. There's all this an analogy language. It's like it's not exactly that but that's what it seemed like. Visionary language. So the demons were like horses. They're very powerful, mighty, bull, ready to charge into battle. They had crowns representing their power and authority. They're invincible. They're all conquering. They, they have faces like humans, so they're rational. They're not mindless beasts. They know exactly what they're doing. There's an intelligence to them. They have hair like women, uh, an alluring beauty to them for Satan masquerades as an angel of light. So perhaps it means that these demons were in some senses attractive or seductive. They had teeth like lions. They're ready to rip and shred flesh. They have breastplates like iron, meaning no weapon fashioned against them by humans will prevail. Can't be killed. And they have thundering wings, deafening. They're mobile. They're able to move around wherever they want to go. They're moving quickly. There'll be no escape from them. There'll be nowhere to run to, nowhere to hide. And they have tails and stings like scorpions, already mentioned. Their sole purpose 
at this point is to inflict agony on human beings. Tormenting people for five months. The length of time restricted by God's command. As it is now, so it will be then. The demons are subject to the sovereign control of Almighty God. Now Satan is revealed in verse 11. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss. Whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek Apollyon. These words both mean the same thing. Destroyer. Satan is invisible. He is the prince of the power of the air. He prefers to do his work behind the scenes. But here he is unveiled so we can see him. We know what he's doing. Amazingly, he is himself going to be thrown in the abyss beginning the millennium of Revelation 20. Now in verse 12 we have a terrifying warning of what is yet to come. The first woe is past. Two other woes are yet to come. And they're worse. Worse. The sixth trumpet. Verses 13 and 14. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet and I heard a voice coming from the horns of the golden altar that is before God. And it said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound by the great river Euphrates. So the sixth angel blows his trumpet the next woe comes on the earth. The altar in heaven is up there, the true heavenly altar of which the, the mosaic altar or the altar in the temple of Solomon is just a type and a shadow. So this is that true altar where the martyrs have fled for refuge. And so the voice comes from the horns of this heavenly altar. Again, the, uh, it's hearkening back to Revelation 8 where we remember all of this is coming as a judgment for the cries of the people of God for deliverance and for vengeance and justice. So the voice from the altar gives the heavenly command to release four angels who have been bound. They've been basically in chains at the great river Euphrates. Again, demons are fallen angels. Jesus said that hell was made for the devil and his angels. Since these four angels have been bound, they're like demons. They're restrained. So they can't be good angels. They must be wicked angels. And they're chained up for this exact moment in history. And they're there at the great river Euphrates, which I think is a symbol which the Jews would have recognized. That's the northern boundary of the promised land. Beyond it, that's the land of the Gentiles. And from that river pours in the invasion of the Assyrians of the Babylonians. Jeremiah likened it to a pot boiling with water poured down that crosses the Euphrates. So there's a sense of a boundary and then they pour over and start to invade. And so there's this terrifying army that's going to invade. An army numbered in this text at 200 million warriors. Look at verses 15 through 19. The four angels who have been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year. Perfect timing. God knows exactly when this is going to happen. It's a set moment in time. Were released, listen to this, to kill a third of mankind. One third of the human race killed by this army. The number of the mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. Verse 17. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions. And out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails were like snakes having heads... ...with which they inflict injury. Well, what does this army represent? 
Well, unlike the previous black cloud of demons that comes billowing up out of the shaft of the abyss, this army of 200 million does have the power to kill. The carnage is immense. A third of mankind dies in the slaughter. Now, this could be a human army under satanic control, demonic control. Or it could just be all of the demons that there are unleashed at this point to the end that they kill a third of mankind. The, I think we should look on this as a demonic army either way. The description of the mounted troops is again like demons in the earlier chapter. A visionary one. There's color like fiery red, dark blue, yellow as sulfur. Seems to represent the very suffering of hell itself. It's like sulfurous, fiery colors. The heads like lions show their power. They're able to breathe fire from their mouths. It just stretches language to the breaking point. Tails are like snakes, like a a darting viper, able to just lash out with venom that will kill. But the ultimate point here is what they do. And they're able to kill one-third of mankind. Now, we think about the carnage of World War II. It was a vanishingly small percentage of the world's population. 60 million compared to maybe 3 billion. It's a small, small percentage. This is one-third. Maybe by the time this happens, that'll be upwards of 3 billion people. My kids this morning, as we were driving in, they asked, is this, I mean, are Christians going to have to go through this? I believe that earlier in this chapter, we have a clear sense of protection from the actual judgments. But we're not protected from living through it. And we are a merciful and compassionate people. And when there's a natural disaster, we're mobilized to care for those that are hurting and suffering. It's going to be a horrific time even if we are protected by the power of God because we'll care about those that are suffering and dying. But look at the ultimate tragic outcome here in this chapter, verses 20 and 21. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues, stop there. These plagues means all of them, the ones that we've had from the, from the beginning. They're cumulative. Cumulative. The plague on the trees and the vegetations and the grass... The plague on the oceans, turning them to blood. The plague on the fresh water. The plague on the sun, moon, and stars. And then the demonic five-month scorpion strike. And now this. It's cumulative. The level of suffering on planet Earth will be incalculable. You know, one would think it would be the greatest possible inducement to flee to Christ. To flee to Christ while there's still time. For I would say that no matter how bad these things are, hell is infinitely worse. Infinitely worse. But yet, look what it says. Look at verse 20 and 21. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. Idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, and their thefts. They did not repent. That's what all of this was pressing on them to do. Flee to Christ. Repent. Flee the wrath to come. Instead, they're worshiping demons. The very ones that are tormenting them, they're worshiping them. You know what this tells me? Repentance is a gift of God's grace. And he gives it as he chooses. No physical or circumstantial pressure and inducement automatically brings people over to repentance and faith. 
It's a gift. It's a gift of God. Isaiah the prophet was told this when he was sent to Israel. How long would he preach? It says in Isaiah 6, 9 and 10, this was his message. Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people callous. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. This exact passage in Isaiah 6 was used to explain why the Jews didn't repent at the river of grace and miracles that came through Jesus. So here you have the opposite extremes. A river of kindness shown through Jesus Christ. Every kind of disease healed. Their empty stomachs filled with the bread of heaven. He raised the dead. He healed lepers. He showed such a tender grace and kindness. They still didn't repent. They still didn't repent. And now the other end of the spectrum, we have the most horrific physical trials anybody could ever go through. They still don't repent. God grants repentance and mercy. As it says in Romans 9, 15 through 18, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wills to have mercy and he hardens whom he wills to harden. What that means ultimately, friends, hell itself will produce no converts. No converts. Our penal system and its institutions are given hopeful names like reform school or reformatory or a correctional facility or penitentiary where they can go and become penitent. And some do. And they're converted and saved from those institutions. But there's none of that going to happen from hell. So despite what Rob Bell and other false teachers have said, hell is not a place of reformation. All right, what applications can we take from this, this chapter? Well, first... Flee to Christ while you can. John the Baptist said, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? This is the wrath to come. Part of it. The greater wrath is hell. Flee, flee to Christ. The gospel is that God sent Jesus to die in our place. To drink in this kind of torment. In our stead. That we might be free from condemnation and live forever in the peace of God. That's the gospel. And not by works, but by simple faith, you can be freed from all condemnation. You can cross over from death to life. So cross over from death to life. Let today be the day of salvation for you. Turn away from wickedness. Turn away from sins. Turn away from sexual immorality. Turn away from darkness and hard-heartedness. And turn to Christ. While there's still time. Now right now, these uh, words are only ink on a page. This morning I added, or pixels on a screen. I have to do that now. So we either have ink or we have these little screens that we're looking at. Is it true? It's true. You have to believe that these words are not just human words. They're actually the words of God telling you what is going to come. Secondly, just understand Satan's present limitations. Understand the daily protection that God is giving to the human race. And thank him for it. Non-Christians won't. They'll keep asking, why are things as bad as they are? But we should realize, do you see the goodness, the kindness of God to his enemies? He causes his rain and his sun to fall and to shine on those who are wicked. And every day he protects us 
protects us from mad, insane regimes in North Korea as they fashion, you know, intercontinental ballistic missiles and all that. He protects us from terrorist cell groups. He protects us from diseases that would spread. He protects us from demons. And we ought to thank God for him every day. Thirdly, use this account of the coming terror to preach the gospel. We have an opportunity, perhaps tomorrow, you'll have an opportunity to talk to some non-Christians. When, uh, when they ask you what you did over the weekend, tell them what you did over the weekend. Tell them everything you did over the weekend. Tell them that you came to church. Oh, really? What did you talk about in church? Well, um, at that point, I don't know how much of this you want to say. But you want us to say we talked about Christ. We talked about Christ, how he's the Savior from the wrath of God. Talk to him. And then fourth, thank God for his mercy to you, a sinner. Do you realize that you deserve to suffer these punishments, these torments. It's hard for us really to believe that, but we really need to. We deserve to be treated actually far worse than this. Do you not see the grace that God's shown you in Christ? Thank God that he does not treat us as our sins deserve. Close with me in prayer. Father, thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the things that we have learned today from this very sober and staggering chapter, Revelation 9. Help us, O Lord, to be evangelists, to spread the good news of deliverance from the wrath of God. Help us, O Lord, to speak to people who are perishing and tell them that there is life in Christ. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.